in recent years, I have learned at depth in some fresh ways the value of bodily training. There is value, the Apostle Paul says, to physical activity, strenuous movement, what we call exercise. God made these bodies to move and work their best when our blood is pumping, getting fresh oxygen to the brain, when we're moving regularly, when we get our heart rate up, circulate the blood, the brain is able to feed on the body, so to speak, and lean on the rest of our bodies for energy like God made it to. And yet, bodily training, Paul says, is not of supreme value. It's important, but it's not as important as another aspect of our humanity. And perhaps you know what text I'm talking about, verse Timothy 4. And it's 1 Timothy 4, verses 7 and 8. Have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Let me just say, if, if for most of your life you thought that verse wasn't relevant, maybe the last few years have changed that, right? <clears throat> have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, Godliness is a value in every way, as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. So bodily training, Paul concedes, is of some value, but godliness, Christ-likeness, is a value in every way. Godliness of our soul or fitness of our soul is of greater value than fitness of the body. And now, I, I would not be afraid to talk for half an hour on the importance of the body for Christians and that some value. However, I'm all the more excited to spend the next few minutes talking about something of even greater value, namely the fitness of our souls and the habits of grace in which we might engage to train the fitness of our souls. So that's what we're going to turn to here this afternoon. To become the kind of people who are genuinely godly or Christ-like and happy. Because our God is the happiest of all beings. And to be fit in soul is to cultivate and strengthen and empower a kind of happiness in life that is deeper than and ready to encounter the world's greatest obstacles and sorrows and pains and suffering. So I want to start here this afternoon by taking our bearings from the early church. If you've got a Bible, you can go with me to Acts chapter 2. We're going to look at verses 42 to 47. And as you may know, this is kind of a honeymoon moment in the early church. It didn't stay this idyllic for long. Wave after wave of increasing persecution was soon to follow. But we have some principles here, if not practicals, that we can glean for some categories of life if our desire is to pursue the greater value and to create habits for it. 
So look at Acts chapter 2, verses 42 to 47. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul. And many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Amazing moment in the early church. Our focus in these few moments will be on verse 42. And the kind of general pattern and principles it provides for us as Christians. But I can't help but observe how many today want Everything in this passage, except verse 42. We all want all. Some are desperate for signs and wonders. Others want to have all things in common, whether that's chosen or forced. And all of us, let's hope, want to have God add to our number. Where does it all come from? What was the church doing when God decided to show up like this? When God poured out his blessing? When God gave them these gifts that his hand could not be forced to give? What was the church doing? That's verse 42. Look at verse 42 again. They devoted themselves devoted themselves. That is, that's habit formation language. We'll come back to that. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. The most unspectacular part of the passage, verse 42. They had received the grace of God at Pentecost and in their conversion, and now they continued in his grace by devoting themselves to some particular means or instruments or channels or paths of God's grace. Specific practices. Number one, the apostles' teaching. We might call this word. The apostles were teaching. What we have today in the New Testament is the preserved writings of the apostles. Those were the inspired spokesmen of the risen Christ. And so there's a word component, number one. Second, the fellowship. That is, the breaking of bread. I think fellowship and breaking of bread go together. When you come down to verse 46, there's this big sense of gathering. They're attending the temple together. And smaller gatherings, breaking bread in each other's home. So breaking bread together, however much that is the meals apart from the Lord's table, however much that draws in then the Lord's table, the fellowship and the breaking of bread go together in a second category, fellowship category. Third, it says, the prayers. So there's a word component, a fellowship component, and the prayers. Word, fellowship, and prayer. These were the means of God's ongoing grace that formed and shaped and sustained 
the early church in this remarkable honeymoon moment. So what I want to do here is rehearse together the place of God's word and prayer and fellowship in the Christian life. But before we go there, let me come back to that phrase, devoted themselves. It's a really important phrase, devoted themselves. This is not the only place in the New Testament, and Acts in particular, that uses this language of devotion. Other than these two instances here, verse 42 and 46, we have at least seven others in Acts and elsewhere. The common denominator among them is what we might call an emphasis on continuity. In other words, they didn't hear the word, pray the prayers, and gather in fellowship once or a couple times. Like They devoted themselves. They made a habit. They continued in this way of God's giving grace. They endured persevered. They stayed with it. They attended to, continued in. They were devoted to, not short term, but not for a passing moment, but for the long term. They made it a habit. They made these three realities habits in their life. Word, prayer, and fellowship. These were the habits of the early church. Their inward devotion to Jesus was fleshed out in specific habitual acts of devotion in order to access and receive more of God's grace through Christ. These weren't acts that they were doing to accumulate favor or earn God's acceptance. They were needy people wanting more grace. And God had revealed His channels of grace, His Word, prayer, fellowship. And so they positioned themselves along the paths of God's grace. Now, the word habit can have negative connotations. Habit might bring to mind what we call addiction or substance abuse. Habits can be destructive. Habits can just be bad and annoying. But habits also save lives. Like the habit of looking both ways before you cross the street. Or putting on your seatbelt when you get in a car or pressing the brakes rather than the gas when the light turns yellow or red. Or the regular habit of modest exercise in its various forms. That can be a good habit. Or the habit of making a beeline for the Bible first thing in the morning. Or the habit of joining with God's people in worship on Sunday. While the human brain remains the final frontier of medical research in our time. Today's cutting-edge research continues to put some of the mysterious pieces into place related to our habits. So this has been a trend. You may have seen this in more popular literature and heard it on the news. Best-selling books like Charles Duhigg's The Power of Habit or Gretchen Rubin's book Mastering the Habits of Everyday Lives. They're, They're popularizing this new science about habits. Where our habits come from? How do we improve them? In other words, we need to fight fire with fire. We fight bad habits with good habits. And at the heart of habit is the brilliance of our creator. This doesn't happen by accident. That the human brain would cultivate and live in light of certain habits is a design feature from our creator, not a bug. 
Making decisions takes time and energy. Remember people talk about decision fatigue. And our ability to form good habits keeps us from having to make the same decisions over and over and over again. So Duhigg writes in his book, he says, Habits, scientists say, emerge because the brain is constantly looking for ways to save effort. Left to its own devices, the brain will try to make almost any routine into a habit because habits allow our minds to ramp down more often. And when our minds ramp down related to routine actions, they stand freshly ready to engage with something new or more important that requires our conscious attention, which is very relevant for Christians. Turning our mind to the God who is and his son who's died for us at his right hand, supplying power by the Holy Spirit. With a habit, the decision is already made and the bandwidth, the energy of our consciousness, so to speak, is free to focus on something else, put our attention, our energy elsewhere. Rubin says in her book, the real key to habits is decision-making, or more accurately, the lack of decision-making. What about us as Christians? For Christians... The so-called spiritual disciplines, maybe you've heard that terminology that's been popular for the last 40 years or so. I like to call them habits of grace. The so-called spiritual disciplines free our minds from preoccupation with secondary things and guard us from the depleting energy of making the same decisions over and over again so that we can tune our attention elsewhere, namely to the most important thing. So habits that get us into the Bible and habits that get us into prayer and habits that keep us deeply connected with God's body, with Christ's body in the church, are spiritual life givers and life savers. When we wake up every day, we don't want to weigh the options and decide all over again as to whether the first voice that we'll hear that day will be Jesus' voice in the scriptures. Make it a habit. And when we've heard his voice in the Bible, we don't want to stop and consider all over again whether we should pray, speaking back to God in response to what we heard from him in his word. Make it a habit. And it's not most productive and most spiritually advantageous long term to make the decision all over again every weekend, revisiting the decision on Sunday morning, whether to be in corporate worship or midweek Bible study or accountability group. Make the decision once, a few times, form the habit. While there's no complete list of spiritual disciplines, the long tally, I think, of helpful habits for the Christian clusters around three big groups. And amazingly, those are the three things we saw in Acts chapter 2. Hearing God's voice in his word, having God's ear in prayer, and belonging to his body in the fellowship of a local church. Or we might simply say word, prayer, fellowship. These were called the means of grace. This is old terminology. Puritans use it, previous generations use it. The means of grace. But whatever the term, the key is that God has revealed certain channels 
through which he regularly pours out his favor. He's told us how he wants to bless us and empower the everyday Christian life. And we are foolish not to take his word on it and position ourselves along the path of his grace. One of our favorite kid stories for Sunday school, of course, is the wee little man, Zacchaeus. Beginning of Luke chapter 19, climbed up in a sycamore tree for the Lord he wanted to see. And Zacchaeus couldn't force Jesus' hand. He couldn't make grace flow to him. But he could put himself along the path where he heard Jesus was coming. He didn't wake up and say, oh, I'm going to see Jesus today and walk around in the wilderness. He knew Jesus was coming to town on this path, and so he positioned himself along the path. Right before the Zacchaeus story, there's a story of a blind man named Bartimaeus. This is the end of Luke 18. Zacchaeus is the beginning of Luke 19. It's a very similar stories. Bartimaeus wants to be healed. So what does he do? Walk around randomly, hoping that God will heal him? No, he hears Jesus is coming a certain way. So he positions himself along the path where Jesus is coming. He positions himself along the path of grace that God might bless him, that he might be healed. So let's spend the rest of the time here looking at these three loci, these three clusterings of these habits, of these these means of grace that would give rise to habits in our life. So number one, let's look at word. It's the apostles' teaching. Verse 42, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. This this is so significant. The reason it's mentioned first is because word comes first in the Christian life. Because God comes first. First, God speaks. He reveals himself to us. He communicates himself in our world. The one who created us and sustains us moment by moment, amazingly, has expressed himself in human words, in the prophets, in the apostles. And it is vital that we hear the voice of our God. The other principal means of his grace, prayer and fellowship, while equally essential with his word, are not as fundamental as his word. The Word of God is the most fundamental and basic means of His grace. Without the Word of God in the Bible, we would soon lose the genuine gospel and the real Jesus and the true God. For now, if we are to saturate our lives with the words of life, we are to be people of the book. This is what Christians have been for 2,000 years. We are people of the book, which is no, don't hear me yet, saying any particular prescriptive practices, okay? We're not there yet, but it is a summons to the principle of soaking our lives in God's voice as revealed in his word, and we might say diversifying the portfolio of media, that you not only think in one or a couple terms, of how content from God's word, whether quoted, read, preached, explained, applied, how it would get its way into your ears, into our lives. It might be reading through the Bible in a year. It might be memorizing whole books. 
meditating on a single verse, aggressively identifying or pursuing applications, listening to sermon podcasts, reading biblically rich content online, taking Bible classes, consuming Christian books, and on and on and changing it up from different times and different seasons. The potential practices are limitless, but the principle beneath all the different, the different habits we might cultivate is this. The fundamental, the fundamental means of God's grace through his spirit is his self-expression in his word. Jesus, in the gospel message, perfectly kept for us and on display in the external written word of the scripture. So Christians are people of the book that find different ways, different habits to make God's word central and to saturate our lives. That's word. Number two, prayer. They devoted themselves to dot, 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 the prayers. Not only does God express himself and bid us hear his voice, but this is amazing. He wants to hear from us. He stops, so to speak. He stoops. He wants to hear from his people. He stands ready to hear our voice. We have the ear of God in this thing we call prayer. Prayer for the Christian is not merely talking to God, but responding to the one who has first taken initiative toward us. God has spoken first. There's an order here. Prayer is not a conversation that we start, but it is a relationship into which we have been drawn by the living God. So his voice speaks first. He breaks the silence. And then, in prayer, we speak to the God who has spoken to us in his word. So our asking and pleading and requesting things of God in prayer spring not from our emptiness, first and foremost, but his fullness. It starts with his fullness, his provision. Prayer doesn't begin with our needs. It deals with our needs. It doesn't begin there. It begins with his bounty. Prayer is a reflex to the grace that he gives to the sinners that he saves. It is asking for his provision in view of the power he has shown us. So in this slide, then, we turn general ideas, general intention into specific plans and habits of prayer in our lives. We find a regular time and place. Pray by ourselves. Pray with others. Scheduled prayer, spontaneous prayer. In the car, at the dinner table, even in bed. We pray through scripture. Pray in response to God's word. We adore, confess, give thanks, petition, We've heard of that, the acts of prayer, A-C-T-S, adore, confess, thanks, supplication. Thank you. We learn to pray by praying and by praying with others. So in Christ, brothers and sisters, we have the ear of God Almighty. Let's make the most of this. Word, prayer, and then finally, fellowship. And this is very significant. This is often left out of 
our first tallies of spiritual disciplines. We may be prone to think in very individualistic categories about our spiritual disciplines and not the massive corporate reality of the Christian life, which hopefully after the last two years we appreciate all the more. Verse 42, they devoted themselves to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread. We saw how in verse 46 there's that connection between breaking bread together, as we've done here, breaking bread together and being in fellowship. Now, the word habit appears only one time in the New Testament English Standard Version translation. And it speaks to fellowship. It's Hebrews 10, 24 and 25. Let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit, there it is, the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. So in negative terms, we are instructed not to develop the habit of neglecting to meet with fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. The positive implication then is that we should develop a certain habit, or certain habits. Cultivate the habit of genuine Christian fellowship which is not only a summons to meet together, but it is an instruction for what to do when we gather together. And in particular, that is to look past our own selves and look to the needs of others. This is how fellowship becomes a means of grace. Not only because we're accessing God's word, preached, taught, spoken, and praying together, but also because we learn to look out for each other. We know each other. We get close to each other. We stay close. We go deep. We stay committed, especially when it's not easy. And we consider particular persons, how to interact with them, such that you exhort them and inspire them to love and good deeds specifically related to them. It's the... uh, this language here of encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day day approaching, that's fleshing out the the command, let us consider how to stir one another up. It's literally consider one another, which means you know the person, you know the need, and you're able to speak a word, perhaps of correction, but more often encouragement in their lives to how to stir them up to love and good deeds because you know them specifically. They're not just a general audience. And so this is how we taste how powerful and how personal fellowship is as a means of God's ongoing grace for the Christian life. As partners under God's word and in prayer, a brother who knows me as me and not generic humanity can speak the truth in love into my life and give me a word, like Ephesians 4.29 says, as is fitting such as is good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. The twin text on fellowship in Hebrews, Hebrews 10, 24, and 25, the other one is Hebrews 3, 12 to 13, which we all need. Hebrews 3 says, Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God, But exhort one another every day that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. 
What's so significant about this charge in Hebrews 3 is that it doesn't land on the saint who is drifting, whose heart is cooling, but rather this charge to exhort one another every day lands on all of us. Be on the lookout. Who's drifting? Who's struggling? Who needs extra attention? Who needs a word? Who needs prayer? Tell fellowship can be such a mighty means of grace in the Christian life that we watch out for each other. Fellowship as a means of grace then has unique function in the Christian life. It is not simply laid on the spiritually weak to muster their own will and do their discipline, but it is for the body of Christ to take up discipline on behalf of the wanderer and to seek to be God's instrument of grace to the one who is struggling, to preempt their falling away by putting words into these open holes in the side of their head called ears and praying for the Spirit to make those words live in their souls. So what we're essentially talking about here is covenant fellowship. I know, guy from out of town, I don't know the lay of the land, Taylor's first related to covenant fellowship, church membership, how much emphasis there is on that, how important that is or not. I think what we're talking about here in Hebrews 10, Hebrews 3, is a kind of covenant fellowship. It is not just informal community, come in and out as you wish. But these are the kinds of relationships in the local church in which we commit ourselves with all sorts of people who, left to ourselves, we wouldn't spend much time with. You know, how much our society today is organized on people very similar to us. This is one difference about the church. One beauty, one way the church stands out is that Jesus brings together all sorts of different people, different ages, different interests, let's hope different ethnicities. And... He brings us together to be in covenant communion with each other. It's a remarkable thing. And we make promises to each other in the local church. To be the church to each other. We call it church covenant. And God uses these particular covenant relationships to mold and shape and feed and sustain us and be means of his grace in our lives. So God means for us to submit ourselves to such covenant community, to commit to it, and to keep it, not just when it's easy. No one needs covenants for the easy times, right? Covenants are made for the hard times. Covenants are made for the moments where you would just kind of like to step away, or move away, or get away, but you've committed yourself to be there through the hard time. And that's especially the time where we need each other to be means of God's grace in each other's life. We need the church, and the church needs you. So let me end with the most important thing. Word, prayer, fellowship. These are the means. But you might want to ask, means to what? Means, by definition, are not the end. Means are means. What does the means mean? What's the end? The great joy 
informing habits of grace and being freed from our focus on self, freed from focus on technique, because these are habits, is being able to turn the gaze of our soul to Jesus. The great goal of the spiritual disciplines, of the means of grace, the great end of the means is knowing and enjoying Jesus. The final joy in any truly Christian discipline or practice or rhythm or habit is the words of the Apostle Paul in Philippians 3, the surpassing value of knowing Christ. So bodily training, that's of some value. Godliness, greater value. Knowing Jesus, that's the supreme value. When all is said and done, our hope is not to be a skilled Bible reader, a practiced prayer, a faithful churchman, but to be one who, in the words of Jeremiah, understands and knows God, and that the Lord practices steadfast love and justice and righteousness in the earth, Jeremiah 9. So our heartbeat in the habits that we develop for hearing God's word and speaking every prayer and practicing the every act of fellowship is, to quote Hosea, let us know, let us press on to know the Lord. The means of God's grace in word, in prayer, in fellowship, and their many good habitual expressions in our lives will serve to make us more like him, but only as our focus turns continually to Christ himself, not our own Christ-likeness. Our Christ-likeness is not the focus of our habits. Christ is the focus of our habits. It is only in beholding the glory of the Lord that we are being transformed from one degree of glory to the next. And so spiritual growth, godliness, Christ-likeness is a marvelous effect of such practices. But in a sense, it's just a side effect. The heart of it all is knowing and enjoying our Savior, our Lord, our great treasure, Jesus Christ. Let me pray for us. So Father in heaven, Indeed, let us know. Let us press on to know our Lord. And Father, if all our habits are molded and shaped by natural terms, by the world's terms, we will not know and enjoy the one our souls were made to know and enjoy. And so Father in heaven, would you give us grace in the cultivation of habits? in the tweaking of our habits, in the maturing of our habits related to your word, related to prayer, related to the fellowship of this local church because we want to know Jesus. We want to know him and enjoy him and we want to be means of grace to each other in knowing and enjoy him. And so we ask for the help of your spirit and we ask that you would hold us, keep us, deepen us, satisfy us through your word, through prayer, and through this fellowship. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.